Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey, it's so, once again, so good to have you here. If you've returned uh, from our Easter weekend, maybe it's your fir- that was your first time in church for a long time, maybe ever, and you've come back. It is so good to host you again. And you've come at the start of a brand new series I'm excited for. And obviously, since last week weekend, a whole lot has happened uh, in, in, you know, locally in Australia. We had Anzac Day on on, uh, on Thursday, which was just such a great day. I was able to take my little two-year-old girl, Willa, to the march in Nambour. It was so cool. She'd been there every year now. that She'd been to three marches in a row, and it was so cool to her see her clapping all the, uh, the men and women as they were marching. But I know many of you maybe have family who are currently serving, or maybe you yourself have served uh, in our forces, and we just want to honor you and appreciate you and say thank you so much for, uh, for how amazing you are. You, we just think you're awesome. And so... We're praying for your family members who are serving at the moment, and I just think that's so cool. In fact, growing up, I remember, you know, as, as around kind of Anzac Day time or Remembrance Day, events like that, there'd be stories and, that you'd hear, and so often some stories would grab your attention as a young kid. And one for me that's probably one of my favorite stories, I guess if you can refer to it as that, considering we don't, you know, we don't glorify war, and that's obviously a, a common narrative that they really push on Anzac Day. We aren't celebrating war. We are honoring and celebrating people who, uh, who fought for our freedom. And so there's one story about that that always just grabbed my attention. And many of you will be familiar with this story. It's, it's, uh, it's around the, the Allied soldiers, and particularly all the troops who were part of uh, fighting during World War II in North Africa, who got given a nickname known as the Rats of Tobruk. And so here's a picture of some of the guys who were, who were kind of serving the trenches at the time. Now, their nickname, the Rats of the Brook, funny, it's just funny how it kind of came around. And once again, I know some of you would know this story, but stay with me. Um, essentially, the, the, the way they fought, they were, were, would dig trenches and they would hide in tunnels. And during the night or during attacks and raids, they would steal equipment and ammunition and resources from the enemy line. In fact, they had such a, a reputation about how differently they did warfare that the enemy branded them an insult and they called them rats. They're saying, you are just like rats, the way you steal our things and you move through the night and move in the dirt. And uh, the Aussies caught a hold of this transmission that was getting sent over the enemy airwaves and, and what was supposed to be an insult calling them rats. In the good old Aussie spirit, they took it upon themselves as a compliment. And they then said, well, that's who we are. We are the rats of Tobruk. And so I, as a kid growing up, I'm going, yeah, that's what, that's what the mateship thing and our values are. It's what the good Aussie spirit is taking something that people meant for harm and become, you know, wave our banner with it. And so they, in fact, they actually, they took the, an image of a rat and they made their own kind of uh, uh, emblem there to signify, that, yeah, we are the rats of Tobruk. And I just thought that is so cool how they kind of, they, they, they took that title supposed to, uh, you know, demoralize them of being good combat warriors. I'm like, nah, that's who we are, that's how we fight, deal with it. And funnily enough, in, a, in the similar circumstance, this is, for, for, for many of you, this is where or how the term Christian came around uh, for the church. So funny enough, the, the, the word Christian was never something that Jesus um, named his followers. In fact, his own followers, Christians, didn't even call themselves Christian. Christians didn't invent the term Christian. Christian was a derogative name given to them uh, a couple of decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And, in, and it was birthed in a city known as Antioch. And Antioch was an ancient city. It was, a, it was a huge city. And it was recognized in the ancient world as very much the world in a city. Because there were so many cultures and, and nationalities and religions and faiths there. And they, it was all kind of in a smelting pot together. And so, uh, you know, there being Jews and other religions, they, were, they kind of all lived together in, in, in this one area. But 
Jesus followers, and at this, at this point in time, particularly Antioch, were, were mainly Jews. They had such a reputation that was unlike all the other religions and groups around it, that they were indeed branded a nickname that was supposed to be insulting to them. And the nickname they were branded by locals in Antioch was indeed Christian, which was to mean little Christ. So they took on this reputation of being so much like the founder of their faith, so much like Christ, that when people saw them and went, uh, you're, you're like the person you claim to follow, you are like him. And what was supposed to be a, 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 you know, an insult, you know, because your founder got crucified, they were like, that is the ultimate like, compliment you could ever give us. And so Christians took it on as their own name. It was only ever used two other times in all the New Testament writings. So it wasn't something that um, in the earlier stages it was as widely understood, but it obviously stuck because, you know, around 2,000 years later, many of you are sitting here carrying the name Christian. What's amazing here is that what gave them the name was their reputation. In the same way that the Aussie soldiers in Tobruk, how they fought gave them the name Rat and was supposed to be derogative, became a compliment. How Jesus' followers lived gave them a reputation and the name that was given was you are just like your Christ. You are just like your Jesus. And for a Jesus follower, there is not a better compliment on the planet that we could ever get given saying you are like your founder, which is the problem. (laughs) And which is the problem we're going to discuss through this series about what happened next. Because the truth is that word there, Christian, comes loaded these days, doesn't it? I mean, think of even for your life and think of the people in your world. Maybe for you, you hesitate to tell someone if you're a Jesus follower, and we use that term, maybe you hear, why do I always say Jesus follower here? Because we understand the word Christian can carry a whole lot of different meanings today. And for everyone, they're not exactly the best meaning. And maybe if you're new to church here or checking out church and you're not sure yet of where you stand with belief, maybe the reason why you've been hesitant to engage in a church community or with faith is because you've met Christians and the Christians you have met have definitely not caused you to be curious about a faith that you could potentially want to follow. In fact, it just confirms your suspicion. You want nothing to do with their Christ. But you've heard something about Jesus and it's engaged with you enough for you to find yourself here. And, and for those who are Jesus followers, you can relate because you know you. And if you are honest with you, you'd probably be the first person. I certainly know I am that I am not always a person that represents my Christ well. And so it then begins this tension about, well, they were branded a name because of how they lived. And I wonder, and this is what we're going to explore through this next this series we're now in. I wonder if we can rediscover something the first followers of Jesus knew and discovered and lived out that made their faith so irresistible and so attractive and so life-changing that ultimately changed their life that in a world that was not exactly comfortable and not exactly inviting to be a Jesus follower, people began to follow Jesus en masse. And the reputation they got wasn't as people who are hateful, weren't as people that made the world worse, but who turned the world on its head so much so because they followed the example of the founder of their faith. And I wonder if you and I are willing to again re-engage with our faith and be able to look at our own lives again. And if you're a Jesus follower here, this is going to be challenging for us. And I want it to be challenging for us because there is just so much cloud and there's so much fog around the Christian faith, particularly in the culture and now, it is becoming of us to engage with some difficult conversations, to look at what does it mean to be a Jesus follower. And in my life, if I carry the name Christian, and is my life, before me telling someone I am a Christian, does someone look at my life and say, you are a Christian? And this is the challenge here. Without you having to wear a title or wear a banner over your life that says, I am Christian, someone look at your world and go, you are clearly a Christian because you are just like what I imagine Jesus to be like. And, and the truth is, unfortunately, 
And whether you agree with this or not, this is maybe certainly the case of the experience of many of you in this room. The name, the word Christian doesn't these days carry the best connotations. In fact, I, I am terrified every single time I meet someone in a social setting and they ask me the, that annoying question. So what do you do? Because the moment I tell them I'm a pastor, I know it's coming with a whole lot of baggage. And before I ever have the chance at just being a witness and being a Jesus follower, I'm, there's assumptions straight away put out there because people have heard what a Christian is. Now, the reason you're a Christian, if you're a Christian here, you know why you're a Christian. It's not for the bad reasons, it's the good reasons. But there are a whole lot of arguments and distortion and fog that we're going to give an attempt at least at digging through here today. And so if you're new here to church and you're exploring faith, I am so grateful you're in the building because hopefully we're going to help lift the fog and lift some distortion of what this means to be a Jesus follower. Now, where we're going to begin this series, I want to rewind just a little bit before uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus ultimately predicted what would happen next. And this is a really important a dynamic to know about Jesus. Is nothing Jesus did was random or unexpected. Everything Jesus did was the fulfillment of prophecy or the fulfillment of promise. He didn't just turn up and say, hey, everyone, I am God in the flesh. Follow me. <laughs> he, he, he fulfilled so much ancient prophecy and ancient promise. In fact, it's so remarkable to see just how much Jesus fulfilled, which stands in dire contrast, an incredible contrast to every other religious leader on the planet who, without any introduction, without any platform, without anyone expecting it, they rocked up and simply said, I am someone important, so follow me. All of the events around Jesus' life pointed to his claim, and ultimately his death and resurrection proved it. And so, so prediction was a big part of Jesus' life, and one of the incredible things he predicted is what would happen after his death and after his resurrection. So we're going to pick up Matthew's account. Matthew was one of uh, Jesus' followers. This is amazing. Matthew was hated by most Jews. He was a tax collector, and we heard a bit about this last weekend. And, uh, and, and Jesus loved him. Jesus invited him to be a follower, and it turned Matthew's life around. And so he wrote his account of what he saw Jesus say and do. And this is an amazing moment here of Jesus with his disciples, and it was a really turning point in, uh, in his ministry. So let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 16. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and I want you to um, remember this place. Caesarea Philippi comes from two words, obviously. Caesarea comes from Caesar. Philippi from King Philip, who's a king at the time. This is a particular area that Jews would avoid completely, and we'll come back to this. But Jesus came to there with his followers, with his disciples, and then he asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Is the title Jesus would often use for himself, Son of Man. So they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So essentially they're saying, look, opinion, popular opinions divided on who you are. A lot of people think you're a dead Jewish guy come back to life and you're one of our ancient prophets. There's, we don't know, right? Everyone's got their opinion about you. And then Jesus turns the conversation remarkably and then asks it personally to them. Says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Matthew records only one of the disciples saying this, Peter. Simon Peter answered, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the one who has promised. You're the one who has prophesied. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the son of the living God. You are God in a body. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, by other people. This was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. And what he says next is absolutely remarkable in the prediction he gives about what was happening after this. He says to them, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell the gates of Hades will not overcome it so here's the first instance we see Jesus and anywhere in the New Testament we see this word church referred to here and this is really important that I want to kind of look at today of where maybe some of the fog maybe some of the cloud or distortion had rested upon this idea because the word we get here church funnily enough um, 
one of the difficulties we have in our Bible is what needs to be translated and what needs to be interpreted because obviously dealing with ancient languages and modern languages, I mean, half of us can't even understand the Australian accent these days and we even, you know, for goodness sakes, like I, I feel sorry for anyone, if you're here and you're coming out to Australia to learn English, we have like obliterated the, the English language here in Australia, okay? So um, it's difficult enough to even interpret it as Aussies, but let alone trying to get an, an ancient language with its own unique kind of characteristics and interpret it today. So the, the, there's often a tension between interpreting and translating. And so while some things, are just, uh, you just try and translate them, but to just translate it from an ancient to a modern language, um, to just purely translate, you have to do some interpretation because words have different meaning. But other words have been translated incorrectly or rather have been interpreted incorrectly. So the word church that we get is not a translation, it's an interpretation. If the word church was simply translated, we would have had the word ecclesia. Now, I know you think, well, I've never heard of that word ecclesia. Do we have those slides up? There it is. Okay, so ecclesia. This is a Greek term, and this is a word that Jesus originally used. He referred to ecclesia. Now, church comes from a German word known as, I'm going to pronounce this incredibly incorrectly, but here's my attempt, called kirsch, which essentially is a, is, a, is a translation from the idea of temple or house of the Lord. And so, once again, that brings up symbology, doesn't it? This idea of a building or a place or a location, an institution, a hierarchy, a priesthood, an eldership. It's this, this different idea. But Jesus didn't use that word, kirsch, which is where we get church. He never used it. This was a wrong uh, interpretation of a word that should have been translated, but rather is interpreted. And it's been wrongly interpreted, and it's caused a lot of harm through history. The word he used was ecclesia, which is better translated as the term assembly or gathering or grouping of people for a purpose. So Jesus said, look, I didn't come to set up a building or to create a sacred place or, or a kind of a sacred institution. I came to build people. I came to gather humans. Jesus predicted a people, not a place. And this is really, really important to kind of understand the difference between this. He predicted a people, not a place. And so so to Jesus' first followers, they totally weren't getting where Jesus was coming from right now. And they would have, in fact, been really, really confused about what he was saying. But now, and we're going to see, obviously, what happened next gave what Jesus was saying here a whole lot of context. So, and the word church was only used several times in the New Testament. The purpose of it was he was talking about people, not a place, particularly because the New Testament writers often refer to the church as the body of Christ. It wasn't referring to another temple. It wasn't referring to another religion set up with a whole lot of priestly ordinances. It wasn't any of that. He was talking about a people who would be gathered around the follow, being followers of Jesus. Now, remember I was talking about where Jesus did this. He brought them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. In other words, yeah, that's the place he brought him to. And this is where he said, I will build my church. And on, he said, on this rock. Can we go to the next slide? He said, oh yeah, we'll go here. So he said, he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, this is Caesarea Philippi. And in fact, this is a historical place known as the gates of Hades or the gates of death or the gates of hell. So different translations have brought different meanings to it. But essentially, it's speaking of the same place, the gates of Hades. And so this spot here, this is so important to understand. Jesus brought his disciples here. Now, what was, if someone who would understand the historical context here or lived at Jesus' time, if they would have heard that there was a Jewish rabbi going around bringing his teenage boy followers to this place, 
there would have been utter shock because no Jews went here. This place was known as where the worst occult practices would happen. Right there in front of that cave, there was an ancient temple set up the front of it. You can still visit this place today. The whole lot of the, the artifacts that are still there. Um, but ultimately, no Jew would go here. The religious practices and the pagan rituals that would take place here, even in our modern, enlightened, liberated world today, would still look at a lot of the practices that happened there and turn our face going, wow, that is really often, that is really seedy. It was the most grotesque place. Uh, human sacrifice happened there amongst a whole lot of other uh, debaucherous activities. <laughs> There's that word, debaucherous activities that took place there. And so Jews would, even if that was the shortcut to get the summary you were going, they would intentionally take the long road to avoid this place. Jews just did not go there. If you went there, you were considered ritually unclean. So then for a rabbi, a Jewish leader, not only to go there, but to bring his teenage boy followers with him, okay? Can you imagine all the disciples going, what has Jesus brought us here for? So it kind of gives another spin when Jesus brings them here and they're overseeing the temple that would have been an operation here. There'd have been a whole lot of sacrifice and a whole lot of noises and a whole lot of smells and a whole lot of activities and reputation. The, the, the disciples would be like, what has Jesus brought us here for? And so when Jesus then asked them, he goes, so lads, here you are at the gates of hell. Now I want to ask you a question. Who do people say that I am? They're like, well, we thought you were someone important, but now we're not so sure about who you are, Jesus. So he asked them, he goes, hey, who do you think I am? And in this environment here, where they would experience and receive the worst of human behavior, human culture, and human activity, it was in this place where they would have definitely heard mobile phones going off and messages. In this place right here, Jesus then goes, who do you say I am? Peter goes, I know who you are. You are the son of God. Jesus like, you got it, man. And then he says something that we're not expecting. He said, but it's on this rock, in this rocky outcrop here, in this kind of place that I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my ecclesia. I'm going to begin to build people and to gather people and to change and heal and restore people. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It was a game changer because for Jewish people following Jesus, they were expecting him to simply set up the kingdom of Israel to dominate Rome, to kick Rome out from being foreign invaders and foreign occupiers. And here's Jesus saying, no, 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 what I'm going to build is going to be built and it's going to grow in the worst places imaginable because what I'm building is a kingdom of light and light shines brightest where humanity is the most darkest. And Jesus was predicting something that was going to happen after his resurrection. That his followers and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus meant that people from even the darkest of places, from the worst positions of humanity, from the worst backgrounds and the worst cultures are all going to be built into this incredible family and body of Christ. It was a radical idea that would have no doubt have shocked his followers. But here's the thing, Jesus was spot on. Because when Christianity was birthed, or rather when the first followers of Jesus started following Jesus, everything was against them. On one side, they were attacked by temple Judaism that wanted to snuff out the Christian experience or the, the, the Jesus expression. On the other side, he had the Roman Empire that was intimidated by anyone that would put themselves above Caesar, who was seen as a god in flesh on the planet. And so against all odds then, the Christian movement started. Followers of Jesus began to spread this message and it began to change the world. And ultimately, Christianity was embraced by the very empire. This is so amazing. It was embraced by the very empire that originally sought to extinguish it. I mean, think about that. The might of the Roman Empire pitched against Christians with all its intimidation, with all of its violence, with all of its political and, and military might, eventually embraced it. 
against all odds, even to this day. Historians can't even explain how this happened. That members of, ultimately back in the time, it was referred to as a cult known as the Way, against all odds captured the attention and ultimately the dedication of the pagan world, both inside and outside the Roman Empire. Jesus was right. The right here at the gates of hell where the worst of humanity was, where the worst of false religions were, that's, these are the kinds of people that are going to begin to embrace this incredible life-changing message. How did that happen? There was something about the faith of these first century believers that made a message. You've got to get this because this is what we're talking about in the next few weeks. There was something about the message the first century Jesus followers had that made the message they had so irresistible, so attractive, so compelling, so desirable that the world flocked to follow it. And in stark contrast to maybe how the Christian message is understood, or should I say not understood in this day and age, where often you would say the word Christian or say the word church, definitely not the word ecclesia. People are like, what are easier? Let's say something easier. Where that doesn't happen in this world, something, maybe have we lost something or can we refine something or regather something that the first followers knew. In fact, to give you an idea of just how radical this was, one of, our, one of the ancient historians, we read a whole lot in his time, named Tertullian. He lived around 200 BC. He, I think I have a real picture of him right here. Someone took a photo of him back there. It was about 1,800 years ago. Funny joke, Jono. Haha. So this is the guy. So he was, he was from African descent. And he himself, uh, when he was in university and when he was studying, he, he became a follower of Jesus. So he wrote a whole lot of what he saw that was happening in the world around him. He traveled a whole lot around the Mediterranean Rim, experiencing the Roman Empire. Check out how he, he wrote what he saw in his time. He said, what shall I say of the Romans themselves who fortify their own empire with garrisons of their own legions, nor can they extend the might of their kingdom beyond these nations? But Christ's name is extending where? everywhere. So while the Romans have put up their garrisons and they can't extend anywhere further, so the Christian name, the Christ name is extending everywhere. It's believed everywhere, worshipped by all the above enumerated nations, reigning everywhere, adored, adored everywhere, conferred equally everywhere upon all. No king with him finds greater favor, no barbarian lesser joy, no dignities or pedigrees enjoy distinctions of merit. To all Christ is equal to all king, to all judge, to all God and Lord. What is amazing, when he was writing this, Christians were still being crucified to Roman crosses. Yet he said this message was spreading everywhere. There was something they understood. It's something about the Christian message that was so unbelievably life-changing that it was worth losing your life over. My question is, have we lost something? Have we lost something about the beauty and the majesty and the life-changing essence of the gospel message that those who were first there when society was most against it, when it was most, it cost you more than any other time in history to be a follower of Jesus, when you witnessed people with your own eyes losing their faith, that there was something about the truth of this message that grabs human beings like you and I, people who breathed in oxygen like you and I, people who had to earn a living and, and fend for their family and, and make a living like you and I, that they encountered the message of Jesus and it turned their life around so much and it grew and it spread. And as the Roman Empire shrunk back and back and back and got smaller and smaller, the Christian faith got bigger and bigger and grew further and further and further. And I wonder over the next few weeks, you'd be willing to be challenged again about this faith in Jesus. That for some people, when they got it, it changed everything for them and their lives got better 
because when I say their lives got better, do I necessarily mean it got financially better? Necessarily mean it got easier? Absolutely not, as we obviously see from history. But something else got better. Something changed inside of them that was worth giving everything for. Now, what happened? Now, for some of you, you're nodding your head going, I understand how that happened because it's happened to me. And my life has been radically changed for the better. I was pretty much living like at the gates of hell, at the gates of age. That's a good description of what my life was like. And somehow the message of Jesus came to me there. When I was at my worst and I was at my darkest, Christ's light shone my world. So I can understand how people 2,000 years ago flocked to this because I flocked to it too. Maybe for some of you that that just hasn't been the case for you. Maybe you're going to learn something in this series and maybe for you, you're going to experience something over the next few weeks. Maybe even this morning where you would then go, ah, I now get it was so much that. So to begin this, what we're going to do for the next few weeks, we're going to look at a whole lot of events that the New Testament book of Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, records a whole lot that happened in the first several decades as the church began to spread and the church began to grow. And we're going to learn a whole lot of things, hopefully through this. I'm going to do my best to kind of outlay a whole lot of things that we can learn or maybe rediscover the first followers of Jesus learned. So are you ready to learn it? Great guys, 1015 on fire. I don't know. Okay, this is Acts chapter 1, and the, um, the Luke recorded this. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, this is kind of like his part two of his letter. So Luke was a doctor by profession. He interviewed a whole lot of eyewitness accounts of the, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And he specifically wrote this letter to a man named Theophilus, who was like a, a, he was a Roman leader. And so Acts was kind of part two of Luke's uh, recount of what happened. So this is kind of how the church was birthed, what happened after the resurrection of Jesus. And so here's what he says. In my former book, meaning the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I, write about, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, meaning after his death, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. You know what's interesting about this? When Luke was writing this, people who was referring to that Jesus presented himself showing many convincing proofs, they were still alive. And this is really important to understand. You're looking for the historical credibility, the resurrection of Jesus. Here is an ancient document of a doctor writing to a Roman official who is historically recorded. And you can see the history around it. And he's saying, hey, you can meet these people I interviewed. He's writing to them. They're still alive. And they are believers, not just because someone said believe. They're believing because Jesus showed them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Remarkable, right? So this is, this is, what he, this is why he's writing to him. So he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. A few verses later, he explains them what happens with all the disciples gathering around a resurrected Jesus. And here's, here's how the conversation goes. So they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates my father said in his own authority. Meaning what you're asking, what you're looking for, for Israel to become a kingdom again, God is doing something so much bigger than that right now. And it's not just for the kingdom of Israel. This is for the whole world. In verse eight, he says something that changed the game. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And like, okay, okay. And then he says, and Samaria. Jesus' disciples would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. Not Samaria. 
because Jews absolutely hated Samaritans. There was racial tension, there was cultural tensions. They were happy for this message to go to Jerusalem and all of the rest of their nation into Judea. This is awesome, we're happy with that. And he's like, and Samaria? Not the Samaritans, anyone but the Samaritans. And he's like, do you remember how I said, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I'm gonna build it on the rock, like of the gates of hell where you don't like the people you don't like and the people that aren't like you, they're the people that I like and I want to reach. Like, oh no, not Samaritans. And he's like, yeah, and to the ends the earth. You mean those Aussies, those rats of Tobruk kind of people that you're also going to reach them? Why? They're the worst people. I don't know if that was funny, but there you go. I won't do that tonight. Anyways, so this is what Jesus is saying right here. He goes, it's like he changes their attention. He said, here's the thing. He said, this is not simply just about me now. He goes, what I've done, I've finished my work. He says, now as this church is built, here's who's going to do it. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. You. Essentially saying this, what I have started, you now are to carry on. And this ultimately is what happened next. Where the religion, where the, the, the Christian ideal, the Jesus follower ideal was looking to Jesus. And where Jesus would be, had been the miraculous healer and the miraculous teacher. And it loved people unapologetically and engaged with the worst of humanity and looked at the gates of hell and looked at the debaucherous things that were going on and said, this is where I'm going to build my church. He said, now guess who gets to carry on this mission? He said, in the same way I ministered in this body, he said, now the ministry will continue in the body, in the body of Christ, in my church. And you are to carry on this message. Whereas once kind of just something that was vertical, where we look to God, he's saying now your expression of faith isn't just a vertical thing, it's now a horizontal thing. I want you to look outwardly and begin to love the world as you have been loved. Game changer. And he said, you are going to receive my Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was on me, the same Spirit that caused me to love the unlovable, the same Spirit that caused me to pray for the unprayable, the same Spirit that caused me to be courageous and bold when I should have been fearful and timid and anxious. He goes, that same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is now going to live inside of you. The Holy Spirit now doesn't dwell in temples. And this is where the, remember the tension of church and temple and house of God compared to people and a gathering and an assembly. He said the presence of God, the Holy Spirit is now no longer just something that resides in a building or resides with some man with a robe. He goes, no, 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 it's inside of you now. You carry the Holy Spirit and the same courage and the same love and the same passion I have for the world. You now are going to have that same passion and that same heart and that same courage. What I have started, you are to carry on. And so we use this term power. Power is going to come upon your life from the Holy Spirit and you're going to be a witness. A power and witness. Power for your life to be a witness. That's worth noting here, particularly if you're, uh, you're new to the Christian faith or maybe Maybe not yet there and you're you kind of still engaging and asking questions about it. Talking about the Holy Spirit, it's sometimes difficult for those who yet haven't got their head around the whole idea of who Jesus is. It can sometimes sound a bit odd and a bit weird. Just want to put your mind at ease. It is. <laughs> We're happy with that. As much as, as it can be weird and difficult and strange to talk about, it's just real. And it's more than just real. It's powerful. And so Jesus said, as soon as you become my followers, and as soon as you put your trust in me, you get the same gift. The thing that made Jesus so special, that same spirit that was on Jesus now gets to live inside of your life. And in trying to figure out how do we kind of explain this in such a way that we don't just use words that those who get it can get it. But what about those who don't get it? How do they get it? Uh, recently, I was fascinated to learn that about the, the aircraft that would be commonly referred to as Air Force One, which carries the President of the United States. 
of America. And you probably have the images in your mind of, you know, that 747, that big jumbo jet, Air Force One printed on the side of it. You've seen it in films or in news where you see the president flying somewhere. I was fascinated to learn recently that Air Force One isn't simply that plane that we're used to with the printed title on it. In fact, Air Force One is any aircraft that the president steps into. And the moment the president steps into an aircraft, it then becomes Air Force One with all the authority, with all the might, with all the power of the U.S. military behind it. So if the president of the United States jumped in a single engine Cessna, I don't even know exactly what that is, but I've heard that word mentioned before, right? A little plane. That then becomes the most significant aircraft as far as the American nation is concerned. Most powerful person on the planet. Not because the aircraft itself is anything unique and special and extraordinary, but because of what it carries. And in the same way, the promise of the Holy Spirit for your life through faith in Jesus, what it does is it confers upon your life something of incredible value. And it says that your life is important and your life has authority and your life is significant. Your life has received power and your life has received authority. And what's amazing is, okay, is often I think, wow, that's an incredible thought. And if you're a follower of Jesus here, sometimes it's like, well, where, where, how does that come into play now, like in, in reality, in my life? Because often my Christian walk, I wouldn't exactly use the word power. My, my, my Christian journey isn't often this idea that's like, whoa, mighty and extravagant and I don't know about this witness thing. How does this power thing work? I, I've once heard, a, he's passed on now, but an old uh, English minister, he, um, many of you have heard of him before, named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He used a, a fascinating illustration about how this relationship works with a Christian and the Holy Spirit, how this happens. And says most of the Christian experience is similar to if you're a parent here and you're just walking every day hand in hand with your child. And I absolutely love going for walks with my daughter, Willa. She's just over two years of age. And when she lets me, she holds onto my, my finger here with a little hand and walk together. And, it, you know, when you're a parent, you know those moments where your heart just is like, ah, oh, I could walk her with her holding my hand all day long, right? Until she chucks a tantrum and gives a stink and starts to stink. And anyway, go home. So, but stay with me. So I love just walking, holding her hand. She knows she's safe. She knows she's loved. I certainly love her. And I was thinking of even this yesterday, we're walking through Nambour and she's holding my hands and she's just talking away about God knows what, didn't understand half of it. And she said, oh, that's very fascinating. And just, just enjoying it. Safe, we're together, it's life, walking side by side. And then, and parents, you get this, right? Every now and again, for no reason, unexpected, unscripted, unplanned for, sometimes I just look down at my daughter and my heart just gets overwhelmed with incredible love and incredible passion. And I get swept up in the moment of my incredible child that my heavenly father has graced me to, to love and serve as her daddy. And I would just scoop her up in my arms and swing her around and grab her and go, daddy loves you so much. And I'll nuggle my nose into her stomach and so she can laugh. And then she giggles and times I'd make it go for too long until she cries. But, but anyway, sometimes it's like, it just, it lets her then know out of for no apparent reason just to lavish on her affection and love. And in many cases, this is what it means at times when the Holy Spirit would come upon you. You always carry the Holy Spirit in you. And often your Christian walk is just like you're holding your Heavenly Father's hand. It's just life. It's calm. You're walking. There's trust. There's assurance. But out of nowhere sometimes, it's like you are grabbed in the arms of your Heavenly Father. And He lifts you up and saying, you are my child. I love you so much. And you're like, I haven't done anything, but this is amazing. And sometimes you don't know how to respond to that. Sometimes you might just break down in tears and someone's like, why are you crying? You're like, I don't know why I'm crying. I'm just so moved by how loved I am by my Heavenly Father. I can't explain it. And I feel like I'm the worst person in the world to be loved like this. But that's what makes this love so incredible. And other times you might just break out in laughter and people 
people are like, why are you laughing? I'm like, I don't know. I am just filled with joy inexplicably, and I can't explain it. And there's no science behind this. And your friend's going, yeah, I can see. Well, there are probably some scientists who can help you with your condition you have right now. But needless to say, it's like they might look at you and go, you have every reason to be upset and to be sad and to be grumpy about your lot in life. Why are you joyful? Why are you singing? Why are you still giving? Why do you go to your church? Why are you involved in this? And you're like, there is a joy that nothing in this world has ever offered me, that no possession has ever given me, that no other human attention has ever transferred upon me. All I can say is that somehow I've been embraced by my loving Heavenly Father and I feel valuable and I feel worth. And what's incredible is I've done nothing to deserve it. That is one of the best illustrations I can find to explain what it's like when out of nowhere, the Holy Spirit would just come on your life. And so, but Jesus said it's for a purpose. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and He said, you will be, you have to replace the land. <laughs> you will be, I'm like, did I do that? No, I didn't. No, no, go back, go back, go back, go back, go back. Witness. You'll be a witness for me, a witness. Here's the thing. A witness is very different to a lawyer. He says, in the world, in the world, okay, you're going to receive my Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is saying will happen next after his resurrection. He said, here's what I need you to do as my church, as my people, as my ecclesia. I need you to be my witness. Because what a lawyer does, what an advocate does, is they argue a case. They argue for someone. There's no relationship there. There's no personal experience. You're employed. You give a debate. You give a defense. And you argue for. You give the pros, the cons. You make a case. But a witness, a witness goes, I was there. I've been changed. It happened to me. It's completely different. Changes game forever. And as we, at the beginning of this, we looked at what happened with this translation of word church what we have today is this religious word. The word ecclesia was never religious. It was just this word of gathering, of people, of assembly. And where a wrong translation or wrong interpretation can take place that can lead people to wrong understanding of what a church is or what being a Jesus follower, what being a Christian is all about. This is our challenge. The challenge I want to invite you to embrace and be willing to look at and be willing to be honest enough about, particularly if you're a Jesus follower, but how we re-look we re at how we go about being a witness because the command we've been given from Jesus, the command is that we would love the world in the same way that you and I have been loved by our Heavenly Father. That it wouldn't simply be a story that we retell and a command that we command, but it would be an experience and a life change that we have witnessed, that we have walked through, and that we can now from that place of experience begin to love and witness to the world. The world doesn't need a translator and the world doesn't need an interpreter. The world needs a witness. And every time Christianity takes the role of translator or interpreter and tells the world, this is where the distortion comes because things are left open for interpretation. Things are left open for translation. But when you go as a witness, when you say, all I can say is this is what happened with my life. My life has been changed forever. And here's the thing. This is why Jesus says we're supposed to be a witness. He says, I want you now to love. I want you to love people in the same way I have loved you. That's what a witness is. And so I, I want to challenge over the next month, before we get about telling people what they're to believe, let's love, come on, let's love people how we've been loved. I was reminded of how important this is a couple of years ago when uh, Chloe and I we had the opportunity to go and, um, and preach and teach in Egypt, which was an amazing experience. And our translator was with us there and they 
was in Egypt that speak Arabic. And so he gave me a warning before I preached that, hey, I just want you to know this is really important to understand that if you hear your translator say the word Allah, don't freak out. And I'm like, well, you got my attention now. Of course I'm going to freak out. Why would he be saying Allah if I'm like, you know, preaching? And he goes, well, I'm assuming you're probably going to say the word God maybe once in your message. Yeah, it's safe to assume. He's like, okay, because in Arabic, the word for God is Allah. And I'm like, okay. Thank you for telling me that because that would have really thrown me off and got confused because without the proper interpretation or translation, we can lose meaning, right? And the same tension happens in our world today. But we use the word Christian, we might use the word church, might use the word Jesus, and there can be all this translation and fog. But somehow, the first followers of Jesus had a version of faith that was so attractive and was so irresistible and so life-changing that against all odds, against all the might of the Roman Empire, against all the odds of the politics of the day, against all the odds of the surrounding culture, people flocked to become Jesus followers. And I wonder if as a church, as a church here, if we could be known, not for our indifference to the world, but rather our love for it. I wonder if when Jesus referred to him being able to build his people on the rock of the gates of hell, I wonder if we can continue to engage with that message, that it's a place where the world is at its worst, that the message we have will shine its utmost brightest. Why is that? Because that is where, and they are who, need the body of Christ like never, ever before. You have the Holy Spirit to be a witness to the world. So come with me over the next few weeks as we again re-engage and reconnect with a version of our faith that seems to be absolutely life transforming. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for how you do indeed love us. And like a father with a child, you embrace us, throw us in your arms, lavish, unconditional, unearned affection upon us. And maybe for those here this morning, God, that maybe in their own Christian journey, that certainly doesn't feel like to be the case right now. I pray that they would know that in a fresh way. Holy Spirit, you would indeed fill their lives and fill all of our lives afresh and new today. God, I really pray that over people's lives. I don't even feel this right now. Some of you in your life, maybe you just have felt dry in your spiritual journey. You felt void of any sense of the Holy Spirit in your life. Come on, right now, I think the Holy Spirit is wanting to again fill you. Be open to it. You can receive it right now in your world, in your life. There's no rule to this. There's no law to this. He gives His Spirit without measure. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for touching people this morning in a way that is personal, in a way that is real. Fill people's lives. For those here this morning, God, that have never known that they are loved by you, that have never encountered your Holy Spirit, pray in this moment right now, you'd be real to them, you'd come upon people right here today in this moment. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.